This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a six-time All-Star as a three-time World Series champion in 1998, no, 1988, second round pick with the Boston Red Sox. And the scout that signed him was none other than my grandpa, Ray Boone. Ladies and gentlemen, Kurt Schilling. Schill, thanks for coming on the program. What's going on, Booney? How you doing? I'm glad you uh, you made that uh, connection early because that was one of the uh, highlights of my career was was becoming kind of a de facto member of the Boone family, which your grandfather uh, made me. What a wonderful man he was. I love it too. And and when I was getting ready for this, this podcast, it, it, you know, as we, we all get older, as, as I get old, I was very close with my grandpa. So anything, when I have a, a show to do or, or anything's good, we're going to get some, some Ray Boone action. I love it. Cause yeah, when we had him, you take it you take it for granted we were both playing at the time and gramp you know he'd follow right. me around and i'd come to san diego and of course gramps be waiting there and and right. uh you know tell me that that bob feller story for the 50th time <laughs> and i'd say gramps and, and then you know you <laughs> he's gone for a while and you wish you could hear that story again i'm such a such a good man and and i would imagine a lot of your life is like that given your you know what like 10th generation major league baseball players um with your father and your brother and, and, and he was, but it was a it, very, I'll tell you real quick. I, uh, uh, so he drafted and signed me and we were in the Juco world series in Colorado and we got eliminated late in the series. Um, and I went back to the hotel and, uh, your grandfather was there and he's like, you know, let's uh, sit down and, and, uh, talk. And I was like, okay. And, and so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna hold out and I'm gonna, you know, I this was I was drafted by the way in the January draft, the last January draft. Right, the last one. Um, and so uh I said, you know, I'm gonna hold out for for like a lot of money or what I don't even remember what I was thinking. But he said, uh, you know, here's here's what we're gonna offer you. And it's uh I think it was twenty five grand. And I was like, Well, you know, I really uh I really think I'm worth a lot more. And it's like, well, then let's do this. You go ahead and go back to Juco. And uh if we get a chance to draft you again sometime in the future, maybe we'll do that. And I was like, oh no, 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 I'll sign. I'm good. I don't I, <laughs> that was his full negotiating tactic was okay, see ya. And uh I signed like five minutes later. That that's awesome because I I I often wondered what is Ray Boone like in the living room because I you know I got him in my living room and I used to I used to get oh Gramps you're scouting you know how yeah 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 it, how tough could it be Gramps and he'd always but believe me when I was a kid because you were a little before me I I came out yeah. uh, of the draft in ninety but I've spent like I said I have, I spent so much time when I was in college you know Gramps would be up at USC all the time watching yep. Me. And he'd always be talking about his guys. Hey, I got. Well, that was in his region, right? You were you in his region, or was uh, he, he was he was Arizona, right? Okay. So he'd come up, but he'd come up to you know my weekend series, and I remember when he drafted. When he drafted, he said, "I got this Schilling kid. Think he's going to be good." And it was stories like that my whole life that are yeah. so cool behind the scenes stuff. And, uh, well, I think I, and I too, I think he was in, in every good sense of the word, he was old school in the sense that you're one of the things I think that, that a lot of the older scouts wanted, I think has been lost in this day and age. They wanted guys that wanted to play professional baseball. Like that was a big, that was a, that was an asset. That was a, that was a trait for them. Um, you know, I don't know if you know, knew Kevin McReynolds at all, but Kevin McReynolds was a, was a guy. And I, and I'm sure you play with guys like this yeah, guys who were supremely talented, but baseball was like, man, eh, whatever it's, you know, it, I'll, I'll go play today, but I really can't wait to go fishing. Right. Like they wanted guys who were baseball rats who wanted to be at the park. And, and I think your, your grandfather was very much in that camp. Yeah, he was. I mean, that was important to him in scouting because today the scouting is different. You know, we're yeah. measured. Yeah. And there's a lot more data to it. Some good, yeah. some I don't, I don't attribute a lot of success to. Right, 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 right. But in his day, it was it was that eye. You know, it was. Yeah, I've seen well, this a thousand times before, Brett. And this is what I see. This usually translates into a big leaguer. And I got to tell you, um, one of my the coolest things that ever happened to me when I got traded to the Red Sox in 2003 in the winter. Um, one of the one of the sales pitches from Theo and them. Uh, they had sent uh, a letter for, that Bill James had written to me uh, as a Diamondback about pitching in Fenway, but they also brought with them all of the the old scouting reports from the Red Sox, and it had all your grandfather's initial scouting reports when I was in junior college, um, up till I got drafted, and his projections of me, and reading those words is, and I can hear it in his voice too. I thought was just one of the more fascinating things I had ever had a chance. I still have them. They're very, they're treasured things that I, I, I have and I'll always have. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And I know Gramps, you know, he was proud of you and, and what you did because, well, you know why? Cause I had to hear about it all the time. Well, we, and, and, and I said, Gramps, I got to face him this weekend. Right. You Leave know what, it you, be. <laughs> you know, what was great about that, Brett though, is, is um, we stayed friends till he passed. 
Yeah, uh, you know, I we, remember. We didn't talk a lot, but we when we ran into each other, it was always old friends, and I always I always treasured that and valued that. And then obviously getting to know your family, you know, your older brother who is one of my favorite people in the world, your dad who uh, I grew up a pirate fan, so I really didn't like your dad, but your dad ended up being a, you know, he's such a phenomenal guy uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a nice guy and a soft-spoken guy. And being around Philly a lot, I get, I run into and listen to people talk about your father too. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, and I always thought this, I, I don't know if I've ever had a chance to say, I know you showed up at Gramps. Uh, I think it was a celebration of life, 2004. And I remember that because that was a tough day for me. And I had to kind of give the eulogy because my dad wouldn't couldn't get through it. Right. Uh, but I remember you showing up and, and I just thought, wow, that's 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 big time right there. So I do remember that. And that's and like you said, you had that you had that relationship with grandpa. And that proved to me right there, like, well, you know, this my grandpa that means so much to me, he, he means a lot to Kurt Schilling. Too. Well, I, 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 I thought that was a pretty, pretty classic. Move. I, I think part of it, and I appreciate that, but I think part of that was because we were raised by men like that. Um, we were raised to value uh, the things that uh, made men, men. Uh, there, there was no toxic masculinity or any of the other crap <laughs> that goes on today. It was, you know, you're a man, you have responsibility, you have accountability, you have a job to, to do. And, uh, you know, men like that really, I lost my father in 1988 and, um, I was looking for very strong male figures throughout my career. And, and he was one of them. And, you know, Frank Robinson was another, but, but men who, who said, who, who made, you know, and your dad was just, your, your grandfather, well, your, your dad too. And, and was just one of those guys who the Red Sox were old school in the sense that they didn't, I didn't have a pitching coach when I was in Boston until I got to like triple A or double A that we had roving instructors. And, and it was really, when I look back on it, it's like insane, but they were very old school in the sense that they just threw all the ducks in the pond and the ones that swam, they figured, well, they'll make it to the big leagues and the ones that drown, they won't. And, and they let us kind of go to ourselves and I know you could argue that not a great approach, but but those old school guys knew that baseball players would eventually figure it out. Yeah. I, I, I talk about that. I don't dismiss things, but I, I tell young players today, especially let's even go younger, the younger, you know, before professional baseball and people always, and I'm sure you get asked a lot, the advice you give. And I tell parents and kids all the time, you know, those, Oh, we're going to hire this, this guru coach. That's really going right. to help little Johnny be a better player. And I said, that's all well and great. Once you get to a certain level where you have the, a certain amount of ability where you can play at the next level. And I said, that's all great. The special lessons, this and then that. But you, you know where we learn? We learn by trial and error. We learn yeah. by failing. We learn by, as a hitter, I learn by going into that cage day after day and tweaking my hands and my feet and my position. And, oh, I think I got something. Now I take it into the game. Right. Well, that doesn't work back to the drawing board that's well, and, where and, we learn right brett but i think one of the most important points of that uh, unspoken is you took that to the cage on your own it wasn't on the schedule it wasn't on the docket you weren't at a team practice and and that's to me you know all these parents with travel ball which i think is might be one of the biggest scams in in history and uh you know drive line and all these other things i try to tell people I don't care how much money you spend. If your kid has the talent to get to the big leagues, baseball will find him. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there, I, I, I rarely, uh, and I don't believe there have been more than a handful of player people in history who've gone under the radar um, because, you know, people mistake things by saying, you know, oh, it's a game. You, did, you threw a ball for a living. You played a game for it's a 12, 10 or $11 billion a year business. It's not a game. And, and guys in the big leagues enjoy it as a game, but they don't treat it as a game. You can't. You, I was consumed by it. I lived. I can remember, you know, in the minor leagues, being in in a hotel, a Motel Six, in the window of the closet, working on my delivery, like like trying to stand at my balance point, or just yeah. the stupid stuff that we did. All of it, uh, uh, not uh, on our own. And, and I always tell parents, and, and I talk to a lot of the younger parents. And one of the pieces of advice I give, you know, the, I have a ten year old whose dad says, "Hey." You know, when do I start him with the curveball? And I said, well, when his hand's big enough to control to manipulate the baseball. So about 16 years from now, you know, fastball change up until then. And right. and uh, they're like, well, you know, I'm going to get him so-and-so. I said, listen, if you can't step away and have your kid continue to love the game, the only thing you're doing is raising a, a, a former ball player who just hasn't quit yet. Because the minute you're out of the room, they're done. That's a good point. And, and so, you know, what should I do for my kid? Just make sure they love the game. Play it as much as you can and make sure they love the game. Don't start worrying about the dumb stuff like, um, you know, my 11-year-old's not getting his front foot down and he's hitting. You know what? Stop. Stop <laughs> with that crap. He's 11. Right. Let him just play. Play, 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 play. Because you'll if, you're, if you have athletic IQ, you figure it out on your own. That's the, you're the guy that goes in the cage and you realize that you're rolling over a little bit on the tee. So you move yourself on the tee or you adjust your hands because it doesn't feel right. And, and you coach yourself. And that ultimately, Boney, you know, as well as I do, I think one of the keys to being a big league player is understanding your skill set and knowing what you can and can't do and staying within the confines of those expectations, working on your weaknesses, 10 times more than you work on your strengths because you want to be a complete ball player. You don't want to be the all offensive, no defender guy. Right. I mean, I can't imagine growing up in the Boone family because your dad was a a two way player in a sense. He could hit as a catcher, but he was a phenomenal catcher. Your brother the same way. And you were very much the same way in that you guys were elite defensively, but you brought batting skills to the table at a time when it was all about RBIs and home runs. And, and I thought that that was always a cool thing. You know, you know, when you mentioned, like you just, as an example, and this, you mentioned a Kevin McReynolds type player. I played with a few of those guys. And now yep. that you talk about it, it's amazing to me because I love this game so much. I was, you talk about standing in front of the mirror, getting your ballots point. Yep. Oh, I can't tell you how many nights I had my cowboy boots on naked in the, just so just so I could make light of myself a little bit that I was yep. doing it, but I still had to do it. It's like something's off. Uh, man, at the release point, I'm not picking up yep. that slider. Yep. I'm reading fastball out of his hand, and he's fooling me on the slider every time. I used to – hey, when we – you know, when we played the minor leagues, we played at the worst – we stayed at the worst hotels ever. Uh, they were they were nasty. The only thing I ever cared about was if they had a pool because I'd go out into the – uh, that was how I, sl- I I dry I dry pitched in the pool in like the middle of the shallow deep end where I could get to my shoulders below the water and I would slowly do my delivery and and pick it up so I could stay back so I could feel 
literally every right. me- millimeter of my del- but it was in the hotel pool at a motel six in Elmira, New York or, or, or Greensboro, North Carolina. But, but I, I didn't have to be coached to do that. I, I, I felt like that's what I had to be doing. And, and those Kevin McReynolds guys, and again, supremely talented. I always looked at Will Myers like that. I don't know him, but he right. seemed to me like a guy who showed up in the ballpark and he's like, yeah, I got Ford Bass tonight. I went three for four. I can't wait to go fishing. And, and it was like, you know, that I was always that I was the other way. Like I went three for four. Okay, how did he get me out that fourth at bat? Or I punched a guy out three times. How did he get that the bat on the ball that fourth time? And I was always searching. And that's what I found, honestly, to the end of my career. I was always searching for perfection. And I was okay coming up a little short, but that didn't stop me from looking. Yeah, I, I don't know how those guys at the level we played at for so long. I don't know how the guys that don't have that level of passion for this game, how they competed. Well, because I, I think how much I love this game. Yeah, yeah we, we all got a certain amount of talent. We're all we're all born with. But I love this game and I was so passionate about this game to the end. It's like, wow, I put every ounce of heart and soul I had into it. And I thought, how well, how do other guys that don't have this, how do they even compete? I'll give you a great example. Um, Scott Rowland, who was one of my fondest. Uh, one of my favorite teammates of all time and most athletically gifted human being I've ever been around. Scott Rowland wanted to show up at 7.05, take his four bats, play Hall of Fame defense better than anybody's ever lived, and go home at 10 o'clock. He didn't want any of the superfluous stuff. He didn't want the Philadelphia media. He didn't want to hang out and have beers in the clubhouse. He wanted, you know, Scott Rowland was the guy who showed up at the park and he had, you know, when Atlas shrugged, he was reading, like, and people were looking at him like he had five eyes. And a lot of guys like Larry Boa, lifers, baseball lifers, that that rubbed the wrong way because they didn't understand how can you not be all in? Well, he was all in. It was just the 705, the 1005 all in, and they wanted to go home and be left alone. A lot of coaches and a lot of people tried to make guys like that into something they were not. Scott Rowland was a leader, like Cal Ripken was the same way. Cal didn't talk a lot. He showed up. He played every day. He took his 100 ground balls. He played the game the right way. He played the game as hard as anybody on the field. And then he went home. And, and that's what they wanted. And and baseball, we, there was, you know, in a good clubhouse, you had the full gamut. You had the vocal leader who it didn't matter what he was hitting. He was the leader. And then you had the 25th guy. And great teams had all 25. Yeah. No, without a doubt. And some of the best, some of the best guys, especially when I was a young player, some of the guys I looked to was was not necessarily what they said, but how they went about their business, how they carried themselves, how they took the field, how they played the game, how they acted like a pro. The right. the pros, you know, when when they were going through tough times, and I I I'd, I'd be keying in on these guys. I'm like, wow, what he's going through right now, and the way he's behaving, that's a professional right there. That's who yeah. I strive to be like. Because when and I was one- young, I was. Well, I want to ask you this. When you were young, you grew up in a big league clubhouse. Yep. And I wondered how much of a positive or negative impact was that on you going in? Because I can see where in the minor leagues it can hurt guys if if you're if you're not reverent of the play. Like everybody else is coming in, they're they're wide eyed and bushy tailed, right, right. and this is professional. You. And you've been hanging out, dude, with Ken Griffey Jr. It's like easy, relax, guys. 
You know, I mean, how did that impact you in the minor leagues coming up? And then eventually when you got to your big leagues in the rookie year? Well, I go, okay, so yeah, my my childhood was Philly in the 70s, pretty much. So it was Schmitty and Boa and Bull yep. and Carlton and Manny, Manny Trio. Vuk was on that team. Bake McBride, Maddox. That was my guys growing yep. up. So, yeah, you're right. I was a I was a 10-year-old kid, an 8-year-old kid, you know, throughout the whole decade of the 70s that I went to the ballpark and it was no big deal. And I'm staying at Pete Rose's house tonight. Right. That's what every kid does. Right. At eight. Right. And that's how I was brought up. It wasn't a matter of I was this brat, but it's I did, I know no different. And it's you like weren't in, you weren't there wasn't that awe of oh my right. god I'm in a clubhouse. I, I and real quick my kid I can remember I didn't realize raising kids in the sport. I can remember my first my oldest son comes home my oldest son Garrett comes home from from uh, uh, elementary school one day. And the teacher tells the story about how he went into class. And when they had a uh, uh, talk about your parents, they first thing my son asked was what everybody's father's number was. Because yeah. my he just assumed that, well, of course, everybody plays baseball. So everybody oh. plays ba- right. <laughs> everybody, everybody, everybody's home is, yep. vet, is veteran stadium. But such a different perspective for you. You know, like I said, I, I went to the minor leagues, Kurt, and it was this is where it got me for the first time. Yeah. I, sign, I go to Peninsula, Virginia of the, uh, uh, what the, what the heck's the name of that league? Anyway. Yeah. Um, Appalachian league or something. No, it's not the Appalachian. It's the, there's some no. redneck out. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. So I pull up Peninsula, Virginia. I come from USC. I go into this trailer <laughs> and that's our clubhouse. Yeah. And I walk in, I'm kind of like, whoa, all right, this is a little shady, but this is what A ball is. Let's go. Yeah. So I remember the first night. I remember I get there and all the players, and it was an older A ball team. You know, I had 26, 27 year old guy. I remember I was facing Arthur Rhodes, was my debut. Oh, my God. And they're like, this guy, he's, you know, he was an Oriole at the time. And he said, this guy throws really hard. Uh, Brett, you probably picked a bad day to make your debut. So I was thinking about that. And I, I got through the game. We come back to the clubhouse and I remember sitting in my locker and right away without, you know, I didn't even think twice about it. I'm like, well, where's the, where's the spread? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, I'm looking at everybody. I'm like, well, we got to have some food. They got to feed us after the game. So I kind of walk over to the guy and his name, I'll never forget him. Shill, his name was uh, Tiny, they called him. Was, this guy probably weighed 400 pounds. Yep. And he clipped the tickets. He worked the barbecue and he dragged the field. And, you know, he was in charge yep. of the turf. He was everybody. And they called him Tiny, obviously, because he was 400 pounds. So I go to Tiny and I, I say, hey, where's the spread? He, he looks at me, he goes, hey, Junior. He goes, I'll be right in. So I turn around, and I and I think to the, to myself, I'm telling my teammates, I said, Tiny's bringing the spread. <laughs> and they're laughing at me. He comes in with a, with a basket full of hot dogs, yep. throws them on, on a cardboard table in the middle of the, of the trailer, and goes, there's your spread, big leaguer. Yep. And, and that kind of, I realized, I started laughing at myself. Yep. Actually had a hot dog, moved on, and I said, what do we do? Well, if you want to have spreads like this, don't play very good. If you want to yep. get the hell out of here, play better. You want to go uh, to that, that USC was my spread, you get to the big leagues as fast as you can. And, and 
You know, but and that was a thing, right? I mean, in the minor leagues when we were coming up, you ate concession stand food, or right. or this team stopped at a, a somewhere on the way back to your home park, and it became. I'll, I'll tell you, it was, it was another separator too. If you think about it, you think about the evolution of baseball. Now you have chefs in the clubhouse. You have private chefs. You have. Yep. You know, um, I there was nobody that wanted to revolt more than I did when Boston took all the ice cream out of the clubhouse and brought in a, a sushi chef. And I was like, wait, what? No, 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 that that's not that ain't happening. I want an ice cream sandwich. I don't want raw fish. Um, but 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 that that became a thing. Right. In the minor leagues now, it, it's it's you know, they have they, they teach guys how to eat and all the things that go with it. But that's the evolution of the game. And I think there have a lot of things that have happened since we played. Uh, that I don't think are, are good for the game or not conducive to better baseball. But that's not one of them. I think the, the progression in the minor leagues and then uh, in the clubhouse and all the off-the-field stuff, I think that's been a tremendous positive for young players. I do, too. And I think here's the one thing I think about, though, because I was a big, you know, I'm, I'm into that nutrition, and I think it's better, and in the men, what it does to you mentally. Yep. But, but – I think it's great what they're doing in the minor leagues. I think the facilities they have right now, they have trainers at their disposal. Yep. You've got the best of the best to be the best. They're making it as easy as they can for you to be the best player you can be. And, and that's, that's also, great. I think that's a downside too, right? Because a lot of the things you were a nutrition guy, you had to work to take care of yourself in the minor leagues. You had to, you couldn't walk down from the hotel and go to the vending machine and grab chips. And the, you were that guy who was searching out, healthy calories because you realize tomorrow I have to play again and tomorrow I have to play again. And to, you know, when you go to that first hundred some game schedule in the minor leagues and you're playing every day, there's a realization at some point that, you know, and I always heard Deion Sanders and Brian Jordan talk about this, that playing in major league baseball was far harder than playing in the NFL because the schedule on Sunday, if I was banged up, it didn't matter. I had smolts on Monday. I didn't have right. a week off. And and the minor leagues, I think, was the first place where position players realized, holy crap, like I'm tired. It's July and half the schedule still left. And I and and you learn you learn the hard way or you went off and you were selling insurance in a couple months. And I've got I've got a son now in the minor leagues and he's very because probably he's my son. He He's learned the game from me. I, not that I beat it over, beat it into his head, but he knows the type of to type of player I was, type of guy, well, how I went about my business. So I think all these strides they're making uh, are great. They're making more money now. They're playing in nicer fields. They've got nicer facilities. But the way they went about it kind of rubbed me wrong. And, and yeah. my son's name is Jacob. And I'd hear minor league guys, well, they need to treat us better. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they. And I sat there and I thought I'm to with myself, you. Here's the deal. Here's where you're yeah. wrong. You don't add one cent to the bottom line. You probably got a big bonus and you got an opportunity to be a big leaguer. And if you're a big leaguer, believe me, your dreams are going to be fulfilled a hundredfold as far as from yep. a monetary standpoint. When you're in the minor leagues, you have a right to nothing. We made nothing. Whatever they give you is a positive to get you to the big leagues, but to sit there and have this moral authority of, Oh, we need to be treated better. I we agree. need this and that. I'm more. sitting there thinking, what are you talking about? You, well, owe nothing. And, and, you, you don't put but, anything towards this bottom line. Zero. Right. 
But think about think about to me what's lost is the athlete loses in the end because that hunger that we had. Hunger. Dude, that's it. When, when, I was making $750 a month yep. in A-ball, rookie ball, before taxes with $11 a day per diem. And I remember my first call to the big leagues, my first big league sprint. I was like, what the hell is this? And, you know, I had Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken in the locker room. And, and when I went back to AAA, it was everything I could do to be consumed about getting back there. Like, yeah. It, it, and, and because – I mean, you go AAA is usually the first level anybody flies, and you do it commercial, right. uh, and that's and then you hop on that first private charter, and you're like, okay, I haven't touched my bag, and I'm already in my hotel room. What the hell's going on? You know, it's like, oh my god, and and that to me was always a a, a huge piece of the incentive to not go back to AAA. And now, guys. Now you can you can retire. I, I never thought I'd say this. You can retire and never work another day in your life and not sniff a day in the big leagues now. Yeah. And it's and the big league club it, it isn't making a nickel nope. because of it. And and I think your point is is well taken about us in the minor league. It's something you have to go through because I I don't know what I made in a ball in 1990, but I know it wasn't a lot, but I knew yeah. I, I went to my buddies. We didn't have uh, people that gave their houses out. We had to go rent a house like everybody else. I got yep. in with like four guys. They said, Brett, you know, it, it was the, it was the middle. It was the June draft though. So I only had half the, my a ball right. was only half season. I said, I need a place to stay. They said, if you want to sleep on the couch, you give us 80 bucks for the month and you're yep. on the couch. I said, got it. I didn't have money. I went to the Piccadilly yep. and I was happy. I was happy as you could possibly be because all I, I want to do is go to the ballpark to get to double A. Yes. I lived in an attic in Elmira, New York for $99 a month. And my, my landlord was this 94 year old black woman who was the nicest lady in the world. And there was three of us living in, in the house. And I, I always do this because this was the roof in my bedroom. I was in the attic. When I say in the attic, I was at the peak of the house I'm six five and I'm in a room that's six feet tall with a bed. And and I remember all of it as being like the greatest experience ever. It's I had fun. It was such a blast. Yeah. And, and it makes you appreciate what you have. And, yeah. and, you know, later in my, you know, you know how we'll always do the, uh, you, you'll go to your a ball or your double a affiliate and, and do a, a game for the fans and they'll pack the house and it'll be a big, you know, money producer for that yep. affiliate and man i'd go back to that a ball it like we go to we go to our california california league affiliate when i was with the mariners the day before the opening day and we'd be playing in you know bakersfield or wherever and we you know i'd all right booty you got to get you know you got to get in at bat then we're going to get you out of there we're going to fly to seattle yeah. but i remember going to those games and going how did we ever do it yeah. With these lights, I can't see anything. The backdrops, your your hand is above yep. the backdrop. I can't see. I'm going to get hurt here. Yep. But when we were in A ball and we were making 700 bucks, we didn't care. It's like just play. It was the game. It was in its purest yep. form. You got a game. You you had something to do every day. And thank God because if you didn't, you would. I, if I didn't have baseball every day, I would have never made the big leagues because. I, I was an idiot when I when I went to rookie ball. I did some of the dumbest shit you could ever do, and and and, uh, but I had really strong male mentors. My first two Italian coaches were small Italian guys, 
in the Red Sox organization. And my God, they were mean as hell. Um, but I needed that. And, and everybody needs that. And I, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you, Booney, one of the things that I talk about, I, I talk to young players, um, pre-college players and, 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 and advice for, you know, the draft and stuff. And I, and I say, if you're, if you're drafted and you've never spent a year away from home, don't sign. The amount of things that happened that first year in pro ball off the field are enough to end every career ever from the girls to the bars to, to all of the things in that. I mean, I was in Elmira, New York, you know, Elmira, New York had a small gaggle of girls who were looking to marry their way out. Elmira, New York had bars that, Hey, come on in buddy. Cause if you come in and people know the local baseball teams in here, I don't care that you can't drink. You're not of age. You know, all of the things you had access to were, were to me, they were new to me. They were shocked to me. And if I hadn't spent a year away from home, I never would have made the big leagues. No, no chance. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. Kurt Schilling, the name. It's been polarizing. Hmm. Uh, why do you think people consider Kurt Schilling controversial? I got um, a question. Well, mainly because I'm a conservative. Uh, that's the number one reason. I, I have very conservative, have always had conservative values. Number two is because uh, I talk a lot. Um, I'm not someone, I've never been, and it, the same reason the media hates me today was the reason they were in love with me when I played, because I was a quote machine. I was a soundbite. And, and it wasn't because I wanted to hear my own voice. It was because I had a lot of passion for the things you were asking me about. I didn't have yes, no answers to any of the questions the media was asking me. You know, I, I would talk about because I thought about this game 24 seven every day of my life. You're going to ask me about uh, X, Y and Z. I'm going to answer, you know, and and I was the opposite. My father was like, you're you're the mailman in your life. My father was a quiet man of, of a few words. But when he spoke, words were heavy. I always came from the school. You know, why use five words when I can use 20? Um, and, and so I was a talker. Um and that's the reason they love me when I played and they hate me when I retired. Uh, because as a talker, you got to call them, you got to call them inches to fill. Just go ask me a question. I'll answer it. You know, I, and, and, and I always looked at, at, at that responsibility as part of the job. Uh, I hate, I failed every oral report I ever gave in high school because I hated standing up in front of people talking. I recognized it as a part of my job in, in baseball and, uh, it was something I was known for. I was, I was, you know, I was, a, I was always a great teammate. Um, I gave everything I had. Um, I was a mentor to the younger players that needed to be mentored. I never did anything. And it's hard for a pitcher to do anything to be detrimental to the team anyway, because as a pitcher in a selfish sense, if I do well, we win, you know? Um, and, and so uh, those things carried over into real life. And, and, you know, in this day and age, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a uh, conservative male who is not even remotely afraid of voicing my opinion. And, um, you know, you think about it, Boney, I was, I, I tell people I was probably the kickoff of the cancel culture because I got fired from ESPN for comparing uh, terrorists to Nazis and for saying that a men should, should have a, a, a use the men's room things that I don't know of anybody in our lifetimes that ever, ever refuted or, or argued about, um, but in this day and age, corporations and business America, uh, power and money drive everything. And I'm OK with talking trash to people who I think are morally inept and, and bankrupt. And that doesn't sit well with the left. Um, and, and, you know, 
Um, I'm controversial. You know, I spent 10 years on the Hall of Fame ballot and I laugh because I tell people my vote total changed every year, but I didn't strike anybody out for any of those 10 years. I never got an out. And my vote total went up and down and up and down and up and down. And uh, at the whims of people you can't control and a group of, uh, you know, you were around long enough to know there are very few Jason Starks and Tim Kirkjans and the truly phenomenal human beings in sports media. There are a lot more really bad people, uh, and they tend to have the loudest voice and the most ink. The uh, you asked to be removed from the Hall of Fame ballot, and that's an interesting point because I've got a lot of opinions on the Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, I disagree with a lot of how how they go about it. Right. So, so I want to ask you though, um, if you had your way, how would there's a current system in place. Right. What do you think the best way would be if, if you had, if you had full say of how hall of famers are chosen? Okay. Oh, oh a couple things real quick. I took myself off the ballot in the 10th year because the, the, the uh, scenario became a very unhappy one for my family. Every year when the, when the, when the hall of fame voting would come up, the media would rehash all the stories that weren't true in the first place. And it would, and it was just a pain in the ass and I didn't want to go through the process. And, uh, uh, I, I, that was why I asked to be removed for the final year. But if I was doing it, there are a couple things, first of all, and, and I'll do this with you. I do it with everybody. I'm going to throw out a name okay. and you tell me, and you say hall of famer, you say yes or no. Yes. For hall of famer. No. Pedro Martinez. Yes. Ken Griffey jr. Yes. Andy Pettit. No. Right. The second you have to pause for me, you're not a Hall of Famer. I wouldn't be in my Hall of Fame. I, 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 my Hall of Fame would be guys who absolutely or not. Right. Because to me, you know, because and, and no slight anybody in the Hall of Fame had a phenomenal career and all the things go with that. But but Willie Mays is in the same Hall of Fame as Harold Baines. Harold Baines was a great player. Make no mistake about it. I thought he was a generational talent. Is he a Hall of Famer? Well, that's debatable. Well, if it's debatable, then he's not in my Hall of Fame. Now, that's not how the Hall of Fame works. Interesting. Interesting. You know, so and, and here's the thing that that I say to people: I'm okay with that. I if I don't ever get a plaque in Cooperstown, I'll still have all my rings, all my World Series trophies. I'll have the respect of the guys I suited up with and suited up against. And 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 I'll have my Roberto Clemente Award. And when when 1992, my wife and I, when my after my first year in the big leagues in Philadelphia, that I had success, we were laying in bed one night talking, and she's like, you know, what do you what do you ultimately want from your baseball career? I said, well, two things. I want to win the Roberto Clemente Award, and I want when I walk away, I want people that I played with to say, if my life depended on one game and I had to give the ball to somebody, that's the guy I'd give the ball to. I said, those two things I have to earn. The rest of the stuff is kind of at somebody else's whim. That's that's what I wanted, and and it worked. I think a lot of things, and you you play this game long enough, you realize. My dad used to tell me all the time. You know, I'd finish a year, and it's like, man, dad, you think I'm going to win that first Gold Glove this year? And he'd say, Brett, it's out of your control, man. Yeah. All you can do, he said, the first thing you're going to learn in this game is life isn't fair. And then you're going to move on and certain things aren't out of your control. And, and you, I think you summed it up there perfectly. I think that the most important things are the guys you suited up with when they speak of you, what do they say? Yep. The rest of it, you can't control. You can't control. If you win the Cy young, you can put the numbers up, but once, once the numbers are up, 
Somebody's going to choose who they want to choose. Sometimes you win, sometimes you yep. don't. The only thing that are in stone uh, back in, in, in our day where wins and losses, they were a big thing. You could lead the league in, yeah. in wins, and it nobody can take that away from you. Right. You can win a batting title, and nobody can take but that away from you. But I, I remember, everything else is objective. I remember Terry Francona saying one day, uh, we were talking about different stuff, and and what, he had so many profound things to say. And and I, we were talking about a situation. He was getting mistreated by the ownership in Boston and these just really bad people. And and he said to me, Shill, you're you're fired the day you're hired. They just don't put that date on your contract. So if you know that going in, make sure the day you're fired, you 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 have no regrets. And, and you know, as a player, if I could look back, you, the day you sign your first contract, you're 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 gonna retire. You just don't know what day that is. So between those first those two dates, make sure you walk away leaving it all out there. And I think I tried to do that. In your day, and and we refer to it as a horse. And I, I played with a few horses. You were a horse. Uh, you had two hundred plus innings nine times. Um, today's I, game. Today's well, game. I, I, very few people will go seven innings. Right. Garrett Cole will go seven innings. Verlander will go seven innings. Kershaw once in a while will go seven. Yeah. And the younger players, and, and I say this all the time, younger position players, they're brought up differently than we were brought up. Yeah, it's, it's not, not their, their fault. fault. It's nope. not their fault. And, and I'm not making this a negative get off my no. lawn stuff. No. But I remember as a player, as a position player, because you mentioned it earlier in the, in, the, in the show here, you said you know how important you are when you take the mound. You are the most important person to us. It doesn't matter tonight. If I'm hot, if I hit a homer, that's going to help us. But if my starting pitcher goes out there and ain't got it, we're done. Yeah. And I knew that. And I refer, and you know how it is in the game. We refer to certain guys as he's a horse. Yep. And that's usually a guy that takes the ball every fifth day, rarely gets injured, and logs 200 innings on yep. a consistent basis. Well, I mean, um, 200 innings was the beginning of August or September. Right. Like 200 innings was, well, of course I'm going to, th- and here's the reason why. Johnny Padres, who was the greatest, uh, 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 who was my mentor and the, the cause of my entire career, he taught me, he asked me one day, um, what's your, in strength training, what's the most important statistic to you? And we went back and forth and I never got it. And he finally said, it's innings. And I said, why is that? He said, because as the as my horse, if you pitch the innings, all the other numbers will be where you want them to be. If you're not good, you can't stay in the game and pitch the innings. I need yeah. you to pitch. And so the complete game became my most important statistic because at some point early in my career, I remember learning the difference. And the difference was this. There are guys who showed up to pitch and guys who showed up to win. I was getting paid to win. I wasn't getting paid to pitch. And that's a very different mentality. And so, so uh, for a guy like you on my team, my second baseman, there was Dustin Bedroya uh, when I was in Boston. It was, uh, it was usually Jay Bell in, 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 uh, in Arizona, and it was a different bunch of different guys in, in Philadelphia. My second baseman was my outfield coach. I would go, I would sit down before my starts, and I would walk my defense, my defensive coach, my second baseman, this is where I need you to move my outfielders. This is where I want you to be for these things. These are, and, and then I would communicate during the game every now and then to, hey, listen, 
come on, go a little different. Give yourself two steps to the right, whatever. Um, and what I got was full buy-in from my position players because I made them understand if, if you don't do your job, it doesn't matter how much. I don't care if you go 0 for 4 and punch out four times. I don't want you to. I just need you to catch everything that gets hit at you. I need you to play defense for me because I'll fix it. I'm not going to give up any runs. So, so oh, I only am if you screw up in that sense. And so what I got was I got, I got buy-in from my position players. They understood that they were as important to me on the day I pitched as anything. And so my day in my mind, my day's win day, you know, we, and when you play on crappy teams, um, win day takes on a whole new meaning when you're on a team that wins 65 games and you're making 35 starts, the stadium's filling up on the day you pitch teammates expectations are different on the day you pitch. And I love that expectation. And I tried to bring my position players into the fold to make, and they, I would, they played differently behind me. I, I, they just did. They played differently behind me. I think they felt differently behind me. And I made sure during the game that they knew how important, you know, uh, I remember Gonzo in Arizona playing left field. I told him to play Tony Gwynn a certain way. He said, well, what if he hits it over my head? I said, if he hits it over your head, that's on me. Because the way I'm pitching him, he shouldn't be able to hit it over your head. Same thing with a defensive move at second. Petey would, Pedroia would always say, you know, well, what if he hits? I said, if he hits it there, then I made a mistake. That's not on you. And and I got that buy-in for my position players because it's 162 games in 181 days. In late August, you guys are dragging ass, and and I need maximum effort from you guys. And when I can get that buy-in, I get your effort in late August that maybe some other guys don't get. Well, you know why you got the buy-in, though. If you come to me, Brett Boone, in the middle of my career and have that discussion with me, I'm going to look at you and say, okay. But you got to prove to me that you yeah. owe me to buy in. Yep. And by prove to me, man – you consistently execute your pitches like you're yeah. trying to execute them. Once you can do that, Shill, it's your day, baby. Right. You tell me what what what's our plan today? How are we going to go with? How are we going to do with X, Y, and Z? All right, I like that. Okay, I. What do you think about this? Yes, Booney, that's great. And after a while, as teammates, we're going to be on the same page on everybody. Yeah. Yep. But to get that buy-in, yeah, you've got to prove to me well, that you. Not, not, and I don't want to say it in a condescending. No, way. that's right, though. You, that's you exactly need to right. earn it. You're but right. essentially, you need to earn it. Well, like and you got to prove to me when you when you call for a fastball away, it's fastball away. Now you can miss here and there. Right. But, oh, we're gonna go with a slider down and away, and I leave it up and in. Right. I, well, I can't trust that guy. Yeah. Well, so that I've got to, what, what it brought was a level of accountability for me. Right. Right. My, I, listen, this, this if if something screws up, it's my fault. Right. It's my fault. And, and even if it isn't my fault as the pitcher, it's my fault because I'm right. the quarterback on the day I pitch. I need total buy-in from my guys. I want you to straight lay out on that Philadelphia turf in a Sunday day game when it's 166 <laughs> degrees for a ball at the middle because you don't want to give up a hit behind. I want that buy-in from my guys. And the only right. way to get that is, you know, I always talk about when you, you, you mentioned – down and away and up and in. I was talking to young pitchers about good misses. I was talking to Aaron Nola and and Wheeler uh, when I was in Philadelphia. I was talking about the difference between good miss. I I I missed good when I was going down and away. I missed away. When I was going right. in, I missed in because every pitch, every single pitch, is a is a is a byproduct of the pitch before it or setting up the pitch after it. Don't right. care what the count is, what the at bat is. You know, I'm doing this on your first at bat in the first inning because I know on your third at bat in the seventh inning, I need this first pitch fastball away. Yep. I need to be able to get that. And that was, and when guys like you played behind me, understood 
the level of preparation. And like I said, I was always in the video room. I always had my laptop. I always had my notebook on the bench. I was consumed. And guys that played with me knew that. And so I had a level of expectation on the day I pitched. Other guys didn't. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company.